Good evening, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, we're going to be talking about the sacraments tonight. That's what we're going to be doing the rest of our time with Joyfully Catholic. So tonight's going to be kind of an overview of the sacraments. I know that there's probably a wide variety of our familiarity with them and, and what we even mean by sacrament. And then some, it might be very new to you. So tonight's going to be an overview of, of the sacraments. So what I'm going to try to do this evening is answer a few questions. First, what is a sign? Second, what is a sacrament? And then we're actually going to just list the seven sacraments. We're going to define what grace is. We'll be looking at Jesus as the ultimate sacrament. We'll talk about what our need for the sacraments is and how we receive them in various points in our life. We'll be talking about what's called the incarnational principle, the sacramental principle, and then we'll be finishing with the five precepts of the church. So first, I mentioned the question, what is a sign? Uh, so eventually we're going to be using the word sign in our definition of a sacrament. So in order to use the word sign in defining what a sacrament is, we need to first define what a sign is. All right. So signs are a really simple concept, but I think it's helpful to be specific as to what it means. A sign is something that points to another reality. So there's all kinds of examples of signs that we encounter every single day. So the two I want to use here, the first would be smoke. Smoke is a sign. So if a sign is something that points to another reality, smoke is a sign that points to fire, right? Where you see smoke, you know there's a fire or there's heat producing that smoke. So in that case, smoke is the sign pointing to the other reality of a fire, all right? Another example is a stop sign. That's a very evident example of a sign. It's pointing to another reality. What's the reality that a stop sign points to? The reality that there's a law that says stop where you see the stop sign. Now transitioning then to the sacraments, and we're going to look at each of the sacraments and how this sign is used, but in the sacraments, the sign that's used in them actually points to what the sacrament does in the one who receives it. Okay, so we're going to be using this big fancy word called matter. Okay, so in the sacraments, the matter or the sign that is used points to what's happening in the one who receives. So just so I can put some flesh on this and make it a bit more clear, in baptism, right? The one baptizing, the priest, deacon, or bishop uses water. Water is what's used in baptism, and if we want to know what happens to the one who's baptized, all we have to answer is, what does water do? So if we want to know what does baptism do, we have to say, what's the sign that's being used? What's the matter that's being used? What's the stuff that's being used? It's water. So if we want to say, what does baptism do for us? What does water do for us? Okay, water does three primary things. Water cleanses. Baptism cleanses. Water gives life. Baptism gives the divine life of God to the one who receives it. Water also destroys. What does baptism destroy? The power of sin, the power of death in the one who receives. So that's how the sacraments work. Uh, the sign points to the reality that's happening, namely those different things I just listed, cleansing, life-giving, and uh, destroying. Okay, so secondly, bread. Bread is used in the Eucharist. Right? You need bread made from wheat. We'll talk about all those different things here tonight. So if we want to say, what does the Eucharist do? We can simply ask, well, what does bread do on a natural level? 
all kinds of things. Bread nourishes, bread fulfills, bread satisfies, right? Bread feeds. So what does the Eucharist do on a spiritual level? The same thing that bread does on a natural level, okay? So that's kind of the use of the word sign in looking at the sacraments, okay? So taking a step further then, I mentioned what does the word sacrament mean or what is a sacrament? The word sacrament comes from two Latin words. So this word sacra is the Latin word for sacred or holy. Uh, Something that's sacred is something that's holy. Mens is just a preposition that means means by which. So a sacrament are the means by which the recipient is made holy. Or means by which the recipient is made sacred. Or means by which the recipient is more united, closer to God. Okay, so in its simplest form, the sacraments make us holy. The sacraments give us the divine life of God through receiving them. Okay, so the traditional definition of a sacrament is made up of three things. First, a sacrament is a visible sign. And we'll talk more about the importance of that and why that is the case. So something that you can see occurring. It's also something that was instituted by Christ. And then finally, It's something that gives grace. And we'll define what grace is here in a moment. So in other words, a sacrament is a visible sign that was instituted by Christ to give grace. So a sacrament is a visible sign instituted by Christ that gives grace. All right. So there are three traditional categories of delineating the seven sacraments. The first one would be the sacraments of initiation. So these are sacraments that bring us into the life of Christ, sacraments that bring us, that initiate us into the life of the church. And they are, of course, baptism, the gateway to all the other sacraments. Secondly, confirmation. And then thirdly, Eucharist or Holy Communion. Now, with the Eucharist, right, you're not just, every time you receive the Eucharist, you're receiving a sacrament. It's not just the first time you receive it that is a sacrament. Every time you receive the Eucharist, you are receiving the sacrament of the Eucharist, okay? Then secondly, sacraments of healing. These would be sacraments that are meant to bring healing to the soul of the one who receives them. Those are twofold. The first, a lot of different names for it. Reconciliation, confession, penance. And then secondly, the anointing of the sick. And then finally, the third category for the sacraments are the sacraments of service. So these are sacraments that are geared towards the salvation of souls. Serving towards the salvation of souls those would be matrimony and holy orders, all right? So those who are married have received the sacrament of matrimony. Those who have been ordained priest, deacon, or bishop have received the sacrament of holy orders. So that's the threefold kind of traditional categories of, of uh, the sacraments. Now, this gets a little tricky because oftentimes we can talk about like grace or we can think about grace as a thing. But grace isn't really a thing but we're receiving it through a physical reality like the Eucharist or through baptism in water, through oil when you're anointed. So eventually we're going to have to tie those two things together. How can you receive something that's not a thing through a thing? Right? Because we're receiving grace. We talk about receiving sacramental grace. Uh, you can't point to grace. It's, it's invisible. Grace is an invisible reality, but we're receiving through the natural world, through the sacrament. So those two things we'll eventually bring together. 
But in its most simple form, grace, everyone, is God's gratuitous, gratuitous meaning free, gift of himself. So grace is the free gift of God himself. So kind of focusing on, on those three G's, gratuitous, gift, and God, let's kind of break that down. So first, grace is gratuitous. It's free. This means that it is freely given and not earned. We do nothing to deserve grace, but it is freely given anyway. So the first thing we have to remember about the grace of God is that you don't earn it. It's a free gift. God freely gives himself away in love to us. Secondly, uh, it's a gift. God did not create an economy of love whereby his love would be merely exchanged for ours. His love is therefore not a reward for good behavior or work, but simply a gift. It was not you who chose me, but I who chose you. Right? God has chosen to be in a relationship with his people. We respond, but God has taken the initiative. And our faith is our response to God's this initiative, this gift of God. All right? And then finally, in his most simple form, grace is God himself. When we receive grace as a gift, we receive it in the form of God's divine love, which is love. So, I know it's one of those hard things to define, so we can kind of put some describers on it and say it's free, it's a gift, and it's, it's God himself. All right, So that's the best we're going to do. It's the life of God himself. Now, when you're talking about Jesus as a sacrament, we have all kinds of things, everyone. We have all kinds of things in creation and in the world that can be a symbol for God. Many things in creation can be symbols for God. However, unlike any other thing, Jesus shows God perfectly. He is a perfect symbol for God because he is God. So, just like I've said before, way back in September, for those of you who were here back then, we can look at creation and we can say, wow, God's a beautiful creator. We can look at the human person and say God is deeply intelligent for being able to create the human person as we are. And so we can look at all kinds of things in creation to tell us something about God. But the most perfect reality that shows us God is Jesus. Is Jesus. So St. Paul says in the letter to the Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So we know God the Father is not just an old guy with a gray beard sitting in the sky from his throne. Okay? That doesn't exist. That's not God. But Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So if we want to know, I used to be asked all the time, right? Father, I wish like God would just be, show himself more. I, w- I wish he would show himself more. The answer to that question is he has. And his name is Jesus. Right? That's God. So we mentioned all this this evening because, because Jesus is the primary giver of grace. Because he gives God most completely in his life, ministry, death, and resurrection. Alright? So what we're going to look at in each of the sacraments is you see a priest pouring water. But Jesus is the one that baptizes. 
right? You see, a, you see a priest saying Mass. Christ is the one saying Mass. You see a priest doing this in the confessional. Jesus is the one forgiving, right? It's not the priest. And that's why we talk about the priest acting in the person of Christ, the head. The priest acts in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. So we have to just kind of keep that straight. Now, what we're going to look at here to kind of see and tie together these two things of, okay, grace is invisible, but we receive the sacraments and grace through these visible things. We're going to look at the ministry of Jesus, and we're going to see how that's really, really essential. So if Jesus is the primary giver of God's grace, then what we need to do, everyone, is to look to his ministry to see how God sought to freely give himself away. So if we want to know how God wants to work in our lives, we have to look at how did Jesus work in the scriptures? How did Jesus work in the gospels? Now, his ministry was focused so often on the sufferings of certain groups of people. Right? Jesus spent a lot of time in his ministry with those who suffer, with those who are sick, with those who are grieving. A lot of time with those who are in sin. Whenever we go to the hospitals a lot here, several times a week to anoint, and one of my lines that I always say to somebody who's sick and just really discouraged is that Jesus has a special love for those who are sick. How do we know that? Because he spent a lot of time with them. And so for those who are sick, Jesus has an extraordinarily special concern for, for you, for them. So the poor spent a lot of time with, sinners spent a lot of time with, outcasts. What we're trying to say here is that he made it very clear that God aims to provide his love to those people who are most vulnerable in society. And we're going to come back to that here in a second. That God wants to provide his love to those who are most vulnerable, to those who are most in need. And that would only make sense, right? The God that you and I know and love, of course, that he wants to provide for those who are most vulnerable, but then that also means eventually that he wants to provide for us when we are most vulnerable, when we're in most need. That's the spiritual physics of God, if you will, okay? So just a quick kind of summary. The seven sacraments of the church are, first, gifts from Jesus, second, that the church then uses, third, to give grace, and then fourth, we could add, during the most vulnerable moments of our lives. Gifts from Jesus that the church then uses to give the grace of God when we need it the most. When we need it the most. So this, what I'm going to show you here, came from Bishop Robert Barron. Some of you might listen to him or uh, know of him or read him a little bit. But he went through, and it's kind of genius actually, if you come up with the seven moments when we're most vulnerable, you can see a certain correlation to the sacraments. So, birth. We're pretty vulnerable, right? I mean, there's not much more in need or in need of dependence than, than a newborn child. Talk about being highly vulnerable at the time of birth. Second, growing up. I might seem young, but I'm really happy to be a grown-up. I am so glad I don't have to go through high school and college again. They were good years, but I'm happy to be where I am, right? 
because growing up is a vulnerable thing. There's a lot going on. Usually when we're hungry, right, when, when we have a certain hunger, we have also a vulnerability. When relationships are broken, very at-need time. When we're sick, when we want to experience love, and when we're trying to find our vocation or serving, you can see all these moments when uh, we have a lot of vulnerability. Now, what we then see is this correlation, as I mentioned, between Jesus being with us when we're most vulnerable. Most of us are baptized as, as children, right? Some here are going to be baptized in Easter Vigil, which is great for the practice of the church. Most are baptized as children. When you're grown up, we're given the sacrament of confirmation to help strengthen us in our Christian witness. Uh, when we're hungry, he feeds us with his very body and blood in the Eucharist. When we have broken relationships, either with each other or also with God, he gives us a great gift of healing in the sacrament of reconciliation. When we're sick, he gives us anointing of the sick to strengthen us during our time of suffering and sickness. Uh, love through uh, matrimony and serving through, through holy orders, okay? So it's not a perfect kind of, you know, you could probably really poke some holes in, in some of these things. But I just think it's a nice way for us to think about the sacraments as assisting us in these moments of great need in our lives, right? They become much more real and, and hopefully life-giving for us if we, if we see them that way. All right. So if you go to the, your next page, uh, the incarnational principle. So I don't want this to get too philosophical, but I, I need to try to explain it. So the incarnational principle has two perspectives. The first perspective is from God. The second is from us. Here's the first one from God's perspective. The invisible God reveals himself through visible things. Let's make sure we like really comprehend that line. That the invisible God, we just talked about that, God being invisible, has chosen to reveal himself through visible things. And we can look at a few examples here in a second. Then from our perspective, the human person comes to know the invisible God through his visible creation. So the best example of that is creation itself. So God has chosen to reveal his beauty, his creativity, his love, his providence, his intelligence. But he has chosen to reveal something about himself to us in all those different ways. We have another example in, in Scripture, in the book of Exodus, with Moses. When he reveals to Moses through the burning bush, a visible way of God revealing himself. Okay, Because eventually, the question we're going to have answered to, to non-Catholics who are Christian, Protestants, is, is what's up with all this stuff? All right? So we have to look at these two principles for us to see that. And the best example of God revealing himself in invisible ways, as I mentioned, is the incarnation. God becoming man. God leaping into humanity. God taking on human flesh in his son, Jesus. Okay, that's the best example of the incarnational principle. God revealing himself through visible ways. Now, let's take it a step further now. That's called the incarnational principle. 
let's build off that and look at the sacramental principle. Okay? So, from God's perspective, the invisible, holy God uses material elements to sanctify bodily creatures. Okay? And then from our perspective, we receive God's spiritual grace through these material realities which we perceive with our senses. Alright? So, from God's perspective, God, who is invisible, has chosen to use things of the earth, material things, to make us holy. Okay? Where is our evidence for that? Because <laughs> that's a big deal. Uh, the evidence would, once again, be Jesus. His ministry. If we look at his ministry, everyone, he uses external rituals to heal the sick. He would touch them. He would lay his hands on them. He would speak a word to them. He gave his disciples, his apostles, the power to heal through the anointing of the sick and with oil. He used saliva. So what we know is that in his ministry, Jesus used physical ways, whether it was a rite or an object, to bring about healing, to bring about this grace that we're talking about, okay? So, let's then build off that and take it a step further. How do we know, how can we have confidence as Catholics whether or not it was Jesus' intention to have the sacraments, right? Are the sacraments a way of just keeping priests busy so we have something to do? Because <laughs> i got to be honest, if we didn't have the sacraments, I'd be really bored, right? We're running the hospital all the time. We've got daily mass. We have confessions. We have baptisms, right? Prepping for marriage. Is this the church's way just to keep us employed? Maybe not. Certainly not. Okay? So, how do we know whether or not it was Jesus' intention of the sacraments? Here we go. Really important. Those closest to Jesus, namely the apostles, would have best known his intentions. Thus, the practice of the early disciples and of those close to his disciples is the best guide to Jesus' intention. Right? So I will take the word of the apostles over the word of any of the reformers, is what I'm trying to say here. Right? So what we're doing as Catholics is we're trying to figure out what was Jesus' intention for this church that he established, that he appointed Peter as the head of, and we're looking at the apostles and say, how did they minister to the earliest disciples? And what we find very clearly is what we're doing today is very close to what the apostles were doing at the time of Jesus, would be the best way to say it, right? You find all the sacraments at some point in the New Testament, okay? All right, this is kind of a side note, but I think it's the best time to kind of teach it. You'll find this in the Catechism. Once in a while, you'll hear the term, the precepts of the church. How I like to describe the precepts of the church, if somebody were to ask you, what do you do as a Catholic? This is what you could answer them with. This is what we do. This is how we live. These are some of the, the precepts of the church. All right, so the first precept of the church is that, that we attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. 
this is like minimalist, right? Okay, you can go to Mass more often than just on Sundays and Holy Days, but this is kind of what we're, we're obliged to do or committed to doing, however you want to look at it. So going to Mass on Sundays and going to Mass on the five Holy Days of obligation throughout the course of the year. Christmas, you already know one of them, okay? The second one would be to go to confession at least once per year. That would be the mind of the church, and that's what you'll find in the catechism. Now, should, can you go to confession more often? Sure, you certainly can. Try to go once a month. I know some people try to go once a month, twice a year, uh, maybe during Advent and Lent. I know that's a very common practice. But once again, at the very least, one is to go to confession at least once per year. The next one is a bit kind of deceiving, and I've heard it quoted differently before. But to receive the sacrament of the Eucharist at least during the Easter season. Back in the day, they called this doing your Easter duty, going to confession and receiving the Eucharist once per year. Now, where I've heard this quoted back to me is people saying, Father, I just got to go to Mass once a year. <laughs> like, I've actually heard that before, okay? This is also an indicator, this one here, that just because one goes to Mass doesn't mean you have to receive Holy Communion, right? So often we, we equate those two things, that I go to Mass and receive Communion, yes, but there's all sorts of things that might keep one from receiving Holy Communion. Maybe they're just not in a spiritual state where they, they want to. Uh, maybe they just ate a big cheeseburger on the way to Mass and they, they're not keeping the one-hour fast. Those are realities. Maybe in the, they're in the state of serious sin and they don't want to go to the Eucharist until they first go to Confession. But the bare minimum is to receive the Eucharist just once per year during the Easter season. I'm not advocating that, but if, once again, to be a minimalist, that's what it would say. Fourth would be, we're right in the middle of it right now. Observe the various days of fasting and abstinence, right? Days of fasting are Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. We just had one of those a couple weeks ago. And then days of abstinence are Ash Wednesday, and then all the Fridays of Lent, when we're abstaining from meat. There's all kinds of really technical rules for ages and things like that. So 14 and above, right, abstaining from meat. 18 to 59, fasting on days of fasting. All right, we're going to transition now over to our yellow sheet. So at the very top, going across it left to right, you'll see these five different headings for each of the five columns. So I want to do that, and then we'll kind of go through each one and take any questions as we go. So first, sacrament, we've talked about being a visible sign instituted by Christ that gives grace. All right. And then second, every sacrament has what's called a matter and form. And this is going to seem a bit technical, but I think it's good just to clarify and explain this. So matter, what's the matter? The matter... <laughs> matter is the physical elements and the action of the sacrament, okay? So it's the stuff of the sacrament. For some of them, it's really clear. For some, it gets a bit fuzzy. Then the form are the words that accompany those elements or that action, okay? So the form's what you say or what you hear. The matter's the stuff. The form is the words, all right? Then, um, every sacrament has what's called an immediate effect and a sacramental grace. So what is the immediate effect? That is the spiritual reality that is immediately produced through the sacramental rite. So that's what happens automatically when the sacrament occurs. 
okay? Sacramental grace is an entirely different thing. That is the grace for deeper union with God, and the sacramental grace is only received if one is properly disposed to receive it, okay? So we'll now break that down for each of the seven sacraments. So first, baptism. The element that's used is water, okay? Not Mountain Dew, (laughs) not salt, not sand, water. And then the words that are used that accompany that action are, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, okay? Those are the words. So this comes into play when we have people that are, for example, coming into the church, the the Catholic Church recognizes other denominations' baptisms, right? So you you hear people talking sometimes that were like lifelong Lutherans who say, I was baptized as a Catholic. No, actually, you weren't baptized as a Catholic. You are baptized as a Lutheran. You're brought in the church, right? But you only receive baptism once, okay? So we recognize, for example, the validity of Lutheran baptisms, Methodist baptisms, and Baptist baptisms, and a bunch of non-denominational baptisms, as long as they were baptized with water, and they were baptized with the Trinitarian formula, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay? So, for example, last week, we had a, a young man at the middle school. Um, his family recently joined the parish. He was baptized at a, like, sixth grader, fifth or sixth grader. And we needed to find out what is a valid baptism. And so we actually called the church, Father Wolf did, because he's at the academy, called the church and said, how do you baptize? They're like, well, we use water. He's like, but what do you say? And they're like, you got to talk to the pastor on that one. <laughs> so forward to the pastor, and they're like, uh, yeah, we say we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father Wolf's like, I don't mean to be really specific, but do you say we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? And they're like, we're not sure. So what we then do is what's called a conditional baptism. Right? If you were not baptized, I baptize you in the name of the Father and Son with Spirit. Okay, that kind of thing. But you, you get the point. So it's really important. That's kind of the main thing that we look at is the Trinitarian formula, I baptize you, and with water. All right. Now, this, this fourth column here, the immediate effect, the sacramental character an indelible mark. If you go down, you'll notice for baptism, confirmation, holy orders, all three of those sacraments are sacraments that impart what are known as the sacramental character or the indelible mark. Okay? Now, this is where it gets tricky again. The soul is an invisible reality. Okay? You can't see your soul. Which is kind of nice when you start talking about God being invisible. There's like all kinds of things that are realities that you can't see, right? Your soul is one of them. You can't, you know, put me under and go in and take out my soul. You can't. Okay, the soul is an invisible reality. In these three sacraments, baptism, confirmation, and holy orders, we say that the one who receives it on the level of the soul receives this indelible mark, right? This indelible mark on their soul. Those realities are permanent. Okay? So once you're baptized, 
you can never be unbaptized. Right? You can renounce the faith, you can apostatize, you can be a heretic, you can leave, you can do all these things, but from the perspective of the church, once your soul is marked by God through baptism, it's there forever. That's the sacramental character, indelible mark. How the early church would understand it is they would use terms like tattoos, almost like imagining it as a tattoo. I suppose modern technology, being able to remove tattoos, makes a more complicated analogy, but you get the point. That's what they would use. It's a permanent mark like a tattoo. Now, the other way of understanding the indelible mark thing is it's a, it's a capacity. What? Okay. It's a, sorry to use another Latin word. It's a potestas, which means a capacity. It means it's a capacity to receive other things. So when we say that you receive uh, the indelible mark of baptism, you receive a capacity. What's the capacity you receive? The ability to receive other sacraments, the, the ability to receive life from God. You're given a certain power, would be another way of saying, before we get the word power, you're given a, a, a power to receive the divine life of God, so on and so forth, okay? And we'll talk about the other powers that you get. Uh, sounds so silly sometimes, but we're talking about spiritual realities, okay? And then finally, sacramental grace. Three different things for sacrament of grace for baptism. You receive the divine life as a child of God. You become a member of the church. And you receive the grace to live in a manner worthy of this dignity. So if you're baptized, that's the sacramental grace we have access to all the time. This divine life. I'm a child of God. I'm a part of the church. I'm given the grace to live in a manner worthy of being baptized. Okay? One thing I did not mention, or I didn't put on this chart because it gets even more confusing, but I'll mention it for a couple. The ministers, the ministers of each sacrament. So baptism is one of the only ones, and you probably all know this, that anyone can baptize. Anyone. You could be a Muslim nurse working at CHI, and you know this is a Catholic family, and you know this child isn't going to make it. And you know that they would want baptism. Or that the priest isn't going to get there in time because, you know, he doesn't answer his phone. <laughs> you can baptize. So, I hope our various healthcare facilities understand, if you work in the NICU, or wherever it might be, that you can baptize. You, can ba- you don't got to call me to baptize. If it's an emergency, you can baptize. What do you have to do? I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and don't use Mountain Dew. Right? You slaughter. <laughs> but the, uh, the ordinary minister, the ordinary minister of, of baptism would be priest, deacon, or bishop. Right? Next one, this will go probably a bit quicker. Confirmation. What's used there is the sacred chrism. That's the holy oil that the bishop consecrates at the chrism mass during Holy Week. And then that's used at the parishes for different sacraments throughout the course of the year. So that's the one that smells good. If we had the ambry open, you could see it. It's usually the holy oil that's a little cloudy because they add balsam to it. And so that's what makes it smell sweet. And for those of you who have children baptized or grandchildren or whatever it might be, you've smelled that uh, chrism before. And then the words that are used are be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right with the imposition of the holy oil on one's forehead with those words. 
And once again, that is a sacramental character. It's a permanent sacrament. It can't be undone. And the grace that's given in that sacrament is a special gift of the Holy Spirit to bear courageous witness to Christ. Okay? Now, with this one, I want to talk about the difference between these last two columns. Okay? So, in the sacraments, when it's properly celebrated, there's this immediate effect that takes place, period, no matter what. So, in the soul of the one that's confirmed, whether or not they're there because grandma wants them to be there, or mom or dad wants them to be there, or the priest wants them there, no matter what their state is, if they're confirmed, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit, they receive the sacramental character no matter what. They can be in serious sin, whatever. If, if the sacrament is celebrated properly, they receive that indelible mark. However, the sacramental grace of each sacrament is only received if the soul is properly disposed. So this special gift of the Holy Spirit to be a courageous witness to Christ, that is only going to happen and be received if they're open to it, and they want it, and they're knowledgeable about it. Okay? This is where I have to give the sacraments are not magic powers. Okay? We have seen plenty of people get confirmed. And it makes zero difference. Right? I mean, I'll be frankly honest. Okay? They come, you never see them, they're confirmed, and they're gone. Right? They're here because... You know, like I said, it's expected. We're a Catholic family. You get confirmed. But in terms of the grace going on, they're probably not receiving that because they have no idea what they're receiving or they're not properly disposed to receive it. Okay? So you have to really want it. You have to be aware of it. And you have to be properly disposed to receive it. And the same is certainly true with the Eucharist. We'll talk about that here next. Okay. Next. Eucharist. The stuff that's used... Bread, made from wheat, and wine, made from grapes. Okay, that's, that's the sacramental elements they're called. That's what you need for the Eucharist. Bread from wheat, and then wine from grapes. So, sorry, rhubarb wine isn't going to work, right? If you don't like that, take it up with Jesus when he celebrated the Last Supper and instituted the whole Eucharist, okay? He used bread from wheat and wine from grapes, and that's what we need. Uh, still used to this day. What are the words that are used? What's the form for the Eucharist? These would be what are called the words of institution. So that's when you kneel and the priest says, take this, all of you, even for this is my body, be given up for you. You'll notice we say those words very carefully. We have to get those words right. If we were to kind of stumble on them, we should probably just pause and, and re-say that word. So in, in the Mass, when we're talking fast, like some of us do, uh, those are words that we really have to get right for the valid celebration of the Mass. And then the same words for the chalice. Take this, all of you, and drink from it. In the book that we look at on the altar, the Roman Missal, I was going to bring one tonight, but I forgot it. Those words are in all caps and really big. They're like the only words in the book that are all caps and really big. That means this is important. Okay? Good. And then for the Eucharist, the immediate effect. So this happens no matter what when the sacrament is validly celebrated. The bread becomes the body, and we'll talk two weeks from now about what that transubstantiation, all those things, and the wine becomes the blood of Christ. Okay? So that spiritual reality is made present 
through the proper celebration of the Mass. Okay? The, the, the priest could be, you know, in mortal sin. The priest could be whatever. You yourself might be, you know, not believing. Whatever it might be, you're not, not in the state. When the sacrament is properly celebrated, that reality occurs. Okay? Our belief in the Eucharist isn't what makes it Eucharist. Okay? The fact that it was celebrated and, and, and confected by a validly ordained priest is what make it, makes it the Eucharist. Okay? You get a consent to that belief when you say amen at the reception of Holy Communion time. But that, that's the immediate effect of the celebration of the Eucharist. The next one there, the sacrament of grace, and this is kind of <clears throat> consistent with what I mentioned about confirmation. What, what's the grace offered? What's the grace that's offered in the Eucharist? It'd be spiritual nourishment, enabling one to live in closer union with Christ and others. So what are we looking for in the Eucharist? Spiritual nourishment. To live in union with Christ and with one another. Once again, a very clear sign that we can be in a place where we receive the reality of the Eucharist, but we don't necessarily receive the grace because maybe we're not properly disposed. So we always want to say, I want the proper disposition of heart to be spiritually nourished. Right? To be to, in the best way of doing that is just being hungry for God. These next couple get a little tricky. They're not as clear as the first three. The matter that's used in, in reconciliation is the, the individual's contrition, their confession of their sin, and then uh, their eventual willingness to do some level of penance. Okay, So that's the stuff of the sacrament, your sins and the sorrow you have for your sins. And then the form that's used, the words that are used, uh, there's a big long prayer, right? God the Father mercy through the death and resurrection of the Son. But the very last part is what you need. I absolve you from your sins in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay? What does uh, reconciliation do? What's the immediate effect? It reconciles the individual with God and with the church. And then there's also graces that are listed there, meaning restoring relationship with God and the church, and grace overcomes sin in one's life. But the immediate thing that happens is you're reconciled with God and with his church. I should have mentioned, I should add a new category next year. For confirmation, Eucharist and reconciliation, the ministers of those sacraments. So for confirmation, the ordinary minister for confirmation is the bishop, right? Most of us are probably confirmed by a bishop. But then there's also an extraordinary minister for, for confirmation, and that oftentimes is the priest. So you've probably been to Masses before. We'll do that here at the Easter Vigil, where the priest is given special permission from the bishop to confirm. And then for Eucharist, the only minister for that is, is a priest in bishop, who is also a priest, but uh, deacons can't celebrate the Mass. Reconciliation, once again, priest or bishop uh, can do that. Final one there on this side, anointing of the sick. The matter that's used is the oil of the sick, one of the three holy oils, special oil designated by the bishop to be used for anointing those who are, are sick. And then there's also words that accompany that form that the priest says as he usually anoints the forehead. And the palms are the one to be anointed when they're anointed. Through this holy anointing, may the Lord in his love and mercy help you with the grace of the Holy Spirit. And then there's a second part there that I don't have listed. The immediate effect, what happens to the one who receives it, is the person is commended to the mercy of God. We, we commend this person to God's mercy and to his healing power. And then the grace that can be received is it's meant to bring comfort, strength, and healing in times of sickness. Now, this is another good example 
of the sacraments not being magic. So immediate effect always happens. So when I anoint someone, every single time we anoint them, we are commending that person to the mercy of God. Great. Okay? Very nice thing. Very important thing. However, there's also a sacramental grace available to the person, namely that they allow themselves to be comforted and strengthened and healed, maybe even on a spiritual level, not a bodily level, in times of sickness. So there's tremendous graces offered to the person, but you have to be open to it, and you've got to want it, and you have to be properly disposed to, to receive it. Holy orders. What happens at ordinations, the moment of ordination, is the bishop laying his hands upon the individual to be ordained, followed by the prayer of ordination. So those two things is like what makes the priest, what makes the bishop, what makes the deacon, okay? So the laying on of hands, followed by a special prayer of ordination, designating that man for that specific role of ministry in the life of the church. And so only a bishop can ordain, right? Only a bishop can ordain. A bishop can ordain a man a deacon. A bishop can ordain a man a priest. A bishop could ordain a man a bishop, but he needs something called a uh, permission from the Pope. Okay, So, for example, a couple months ago when Bishop Better was ordained out in Helena, Montana, the Archbishop of Portland, Oregon, was the main bishop that ordained him. If he had done that without the Pope giving him you know, the mandate to do so, automatic excommunication okay, for that bishop. And that's happened in the history of the church. Uh, happened like in the 1990s. Some bishop ordained four priests, and they were very traditional, and the whole thing. He ordained four priests to be bishops, and that guy was automatically excommunicated. Okay. So, Bishop Kagan, right, not that he would ever in his right mind do this, right, because I'm a priest, could ordain me, right, and I would be a bishop. But if he does that without the permission from Rome, he's done. And actually, so am I. So it kind of contradicts itself anyway. So there's all kinds of things in the church to help protect crazy things from happening all right and then the the next column there sacramental character indelible mark when the priest is ordained he's he's ordained a priest forever there's an indelible mark uh, made on his soul that gives him the capacity then to celebrate the sacraments so that's where it's most clearly seen this power that they're given this capacity not like power in some type of you know strange way but this capacity to then validly celebrate the Eucharist and confession, uh, so on and so forth. Sometimes, especially unfortunately in today's society, we hear a lot about laicization and, and that kind of thing. On a, on a spiritual level, that can't ever be erased, right? But he can, be, he can, of course, be stripped from his, from what's called the clerical state. He can have what's called his faculties removed, meaning he can no longer exercise as a priest. But in terms of, like, removing his, like, ontological changes, being changed the sacramental character, that's just an impossible task. So, And then there's a special grace given to priests, deacons and bishops, and namely, it's the grace to live out the life and carry out in a holy manner the duties that they're given. So that's something that we as priests can always tap into and say, you know, I've received this grace, please give me more grace to be able to live out the duties that we've been entrusted with. So bishop is the last one that's actually ordained. So cardinal and archbishop and all of that are just additional titles, or? Yeah, I, I would say um, 
Additional jurisdictions would probably be the best term. Additional responsibilities. Okay, but they're still technically a bishop. Yeah. So the fullness. Once you're when when you're in a bishop, you're you're you receive what's called the fullness of holy orders. So there's. I mean, even if you think about it, the Pope is the Pope because he's the Bishop of Rome. Okay. Right? So it's a jurisdiction thing. It's a, it's a responsibility he has. We call him the Pope because he's the Bishop of Rome, uh, where Peter was. And then Cardinals is simply special designation from the Pope. You actually don't even need to be a bishop to be appointed a cardinal. You can be a priest. Um, oftentimes, what they'll do today is if you're appointed a cardinal and you're not a bishop, they'll ordain you a bishop before they make you a cardinal. But in terms of any kind of sacramental, you know, spiritual, ontological change in being a cardinal, none of that happens. It's just, it's more of a title than it is uh, a spiritual reality.